listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Dawson Moore. Dawson Moore lives in Valdez, Alaska, a town of 4,000 at the end of the road where he works for Prince William Sound College, coordinating the Valdez Last Frontier Theater Conference, a position he has held since 2003. He's also an actor, director, and internationally produced playwright. He's a member of the National Theater Conference, the Dramatists Guild of America, and the Feral Writers Guild of Valdez. He's served on the board for the Advocates of Victims of Violence for the past decade and is the lead organizer for Recall Dunleavy in Valdez. Dawson Moore, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Hello. Good morning. Excited to be here. So um, we like to start off by asking people about their earliest memory. What was your life like before theater? Well, uh, before I'd really had any personality, my first thing I remember, I was about two years old, and we were visiting my grandmother and grandfather in Ohio, and they left me and my grandfather, who'd had a couple of severe strokes and really couldn't move much, in the car while they went to a flea market. And I was crawling up, and I remember distinctly him going, I don't think that's a good idea. As I was playing with the gears, uh, oh, no. and, and I, I managed to move the car into neutral, and we were on a hill, so we oh my slowly God. rolled out the thing, and then oh. went down a hill, then crossed four <gasps> lanes of traffic, and fell into a ditch. Um, <laughs> and, Wait, and, what? Uh, right, right, two years old, first driving experience, already wrecking them. I, I, I didn't get better at that until I was like in my 30s. Uh, but um, later I was told by my mom something that I'd forgotten, which was that I uh, f- was very freaked out afterwards about having lost my pacifier somehow in the accident, which is funny. It was sort of a first early case of, of deflecting. Like, no, 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 I'm not upset that I crashed your car. Have I mentioned that I'm missing a pacifier? Oh my um, gosh, uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, they, they didn't bother to be mad at me because, like I said, I was two, uh, and they were glad I wasn't dead. Uh, so yeah, that's my first memory. Uh, but I just sort of floated around. I started theater in uh, high school, uh, freshman year, and uh, up until then, I was living in upstate New York, and I was pretty much only interested in Dungeons and Dragons and petty larceny. <laughs> When you say petty larceny, can you be more specific? Uh, the, the last thing we got caught on was me and a number of my young friends had taken to robbing the university my mom was at. I mentioned oh, we played Dungeons and Dragons. And <laughs> universities have lots of papers and pencils and things like that that uh, seventh graders can't afford. So, yeah, we uh, we the first time was very innocent. We like walked by an open supply closet and said, what? They're just giving it away. Um, and then we did it two, three more times when the supplies ran low. And then we made the mistake of telling one of, um, uh, one of our players brothers and he wanted to come along and do it with us, but he had grandiose visions. And on the final trip, we, we broke in through a window. We stole a bunch of stuff we didn't want that had nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. And then we were all promptly picked up by the police. Um, wow. <laughs> and so we had to, we had to pay reparate my, my, my family. I, I didn't pay anything, but my mom paid reparations and, um, uh, and, uh, uh she never, I didn't even get in trouble. I didn't get grounded. I didn't get anything. She just told me, I, I hope you know how embarrassing this is for me. And I just felt <laughs> it was so small. Uh, and, um, uh, the, the one guy, the, the brother who'd had us accelerate things was 18. So he went to jail for six months. Oh my it, God. it turns out that society does not want 18 year olds gathering together little tribes of children and robbing people. They frown on that. Well, stealing paper and pens has to be good training for being uh, a writer. The, the, the fetish has stuck with me my whole life. I still get excited when I go to an office depot, man, and I have to hold myself back. <laughs> 
Um, and you said you're from. It was in Ohio. Were you? You're from Ohio. I was. I was born in upstate New York. I lived mm-hmm. in uh, first. It was Ethica, which is a lovely, lovely town. Uh, Cornell University and Ethica College. Uh, my father was a librarian there, and my mom got her PhD there. And then we moved to Oswego because with her PhD, she was allowed to teach at SUNY Oswego, which is a college. Um, and Oswego is, in fact, a a town. They are places and uh, institutions of learning. And I don't have much else to say about them. I don't know. I was, like I said, mostly crime. Oh my gosh. So you started theater in high school. And what were you doing in the theater world at that age? Were you writing plays yet? No, I I started as an actor. We saw, uh, I I moved to Alaska my freshman year and the only friends I had, uh, we got extra credit to go see the school's production of My Fair Lady. And it was, I have no idea how it really was, but in my memory and at the time I thought it was great. I was like, wow, that was really fun. And that was just kids like us. And uh, my friend Kurt uh, made me audition for the next play. And they there had been sort of a general uh, excitement about My Fair Lady that a ton of new students auditioned. So they did this thing where they didn't cast anybody who'd been in My Fair Lady, just mm-hmm. new people. And they like split. Uh, like cool. I, I was cast as half of the smallest part. Um, like I was Porter number <laughs> two uh, out of a character that is really just the Porter. Um, but doing that meant that all those talented people who did such great work in my fair lady weren't there. And we were terrible. We were so bad. Um, our production. That's an interesting approach. No one had ever, I know I'd seen lots of plays, but it just didn't occur to me until like, I don't know, four or five days before the show that we should learn our lines. (laughs) Oh, oh, memorize them. Wow. That's terrifying. Uh, Which like I said, I had seven lines. Wasn't too hard, but the lead actor, also a freshman had kind of the same experience and it was much worse for him. Much worse for him. Um, uh, but then I then I I went whole hog, and uh, by the time I, I was into my junior year of high school, I knew that this was what I was going to do. And it so from there, how how did you start writing plays? Uh, well, you know, you do. You, I did a little bit of light writing um, uh, that, but what uh, what really prompted me, uh, what caused me to write my first play was um, I'd gone out on a really uh, a lovely date with a, a friend of mine named Shannon, and uh, when on the way home, I stopped to get gas, and as I was getting into my car, this woman came up and said, "Hey, can I get a ride downtown?" And I'm like, oh, "Okay." And I just, I didn't notice the length of her shirt, skirt or whatever, but it, I had accidentally picked up a prostitute. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, it would be really bad karma to like hook up with a prostitute after I just got through this really romantic date. Um, do you still want to ride? And she did. So then this kid who had, you know, ivory tower intellectuals for parents was suddenly ro- driving a streetwalker downtown for 20, 25 minutes. Um, and it freaked me out. It was great. It was just, she kept like hard propositioning me and it was just a world I hadn't been exposed to before. Uh, and when I got home, I didn't know what to do with all of it. So I wrote the whole, I just sort of uh, paraphrased my way through my memories uh, and wrote a play based on it. Um, Whoa, that was your, that that was your inciting incident Mm -hmm. into your life as a playwright. Right. Yeah. No, I just, um, and then I I was lucky enough, you know, when you're in college, it's not like this real world, you know, I had a friend and she said, cool, I got to direct something. I'll direct this. Um, and and it was terrible. That play was bad. Uh, she did a fine, fine college production of a terrible college play. Um, but you have to get that one. You have to get that bad one out of the way. And by the time I'd written my third or fourth play, they weren't as bad. Wow. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard a story like that before. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So, um, so I met you because I, 
had the amazing opportunity to go to the last frontier theater conference. And um, I was wondering if you could just give an overview of your career path and how you ended up running this conference in Alaska. Well, it's sort of circuitous. Um, I started coming to the conference in its third year, uh, the third year, the first two years, they'd had some major players here. Um, uh, Lanford Wilson, Edward Albee, uh, Marshall Mason, uh, among others. Um, but I hadn't come the first couple of years. So I hadn't quite figured it out, but in the third year, they opened it up to Alaskan writers to su- submit and present their work, and that gave me a thing to do. So I submitted and presented, and it was a the, there. I could go on forever about how that that year, that week, that year changed my life, and how it took me from thinking of myself as a kid in college to thinking of myself as a peer with the rest of the theater world. Mm-hmm. Uh, not mm-hmm. necessarily an equal peer, but that we're all a part of this thing. We're all, you know, it, I, it got me down the path where I really try to head towards look, we're all doing theater. We're, we're all basically the same. Some of us are famous and incredibly talented. Some of us are not famous and incredibly talented. Some of us are famous and not talented. Whatever. We're all doing theater. <laughs> Fine. Um, so uh, so I, I presented my play there. It was a real life-changing experience for me. And so every year I kept submitting to the conference. Uh, and for the first five years, every every year I would submit a play. They'd take my play and I'd come here and have a great week. I act as well. I, while my focus had moved to directing and, and, and play writing, I, I maintained acting throughout my life. And um, – then my sixth year, they rejected my play, but mm-hmm. I, I always go to Valdez in June, so I just did. I went and I acted and I, I had a good time. Oh, cool. And then my seventh year, okay, they, they rejected that play too, um, but that, that's cool. Uh, so I, I came back and I acted and I had a great time. And then my, my eighth year, um, uh, my personal email address is DawsonGuy at Juno.com. And the physical letter that I received from the conference uh, came addressed to Dawson Guy, dear Mr. Guy. And I was like, I've been coming for seven years and you don't even know my name. Mm-hmm. Now, I recognize now, like at the time I was very pissy about it. Now I'm like, okay, everybody has mail merge problems sometimes, you know, it's, you know <laughs> <laughs> things happen. But still, I was about done at that point. I just, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'd come and I'd, you know, it was uh, that year I would take Edward Albee's playwriting class for the third year. And it, it's verbatim. It's it's the same words over and over again. And the conference had begun to feel that way to me. Um so I went into it knowing that it would absolutely be my last conference. And me and uh, my, tr- my troop uh, arrived on the first day, like at three o'clock in the morning when the first readings were going to be at 8 a.m. And at about 7.15, uh, one of the women I'd driven down with, Sarah Wagner, uh, goes to my room and says, hey, didn't you say you were going to go to the first readings on the first day? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Are you going to come? She's like, no, I'm going to bed. I'm like, <laughs> okay so i might have literally been in my pajamas when i rocked into the civic center and the moment i walked in the door the president of the college who was the founder of the conference john c mcdowell grabbed me by the arm and said oh thank god you're here you have to be a panelist and i'm like what and what a panelist is is they're the people who had meant so much to me as a kid who were responding uh, to the plays so okay, well, I've, I've been coming to this conference and being involved in the process here for seven years. I, I know how to do this. And when I walked out of uh, of the room for lunch, there was uh, a couple of uh, girls by the door handing people pictures of my face with my bio on it, telling everyone how lucky we were that I'd been added to the featured artists of the conference. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> um, and so it was, um, it was a weird year. It was the one bad year of the conference, and that's a whole other story that I could take 10 minutes on. But just to say that it was a hard 
hard year. The conference is amazing every year. It still had amazing stuff that year, but that year was the one year where bad experiences outweighed the good ones for a lot of people. Um, but they were happy with me. Uh, so uh, they pressed me to come back and, and coordinate just the Play Lab the next year on a part-time contract. I assured them that I was living in San Francisco and having a great time and had no interest in moving to the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then it was the only thing my parents agreed on in like 40 years. It was like, they want to give you money for your BA in theater? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess they do, huh? Yeah, they do. Mm. Okay, so uh, I, I let I, – I, once I sort of went, oh, this is a job job, huh? It's running this con- running the Play Lab at the conference, which is like my favorite – okay, all right, all right, fine. I'll come up on a part-time And you should maybe. clarify – that the Play Lab is the part of the conference that focuses on developing new work. Absolutely. The Play Lab is the engine of the conference uh, where we present anywhere from in our first year's six years, uh, in our first year, uh, six plays, uh, to uh, in our biggest year, we had over 100 plays in it. Now we've settled to an absolute too big 55 that is perfect for what we do. <laughs> um, um, so, but uh, but then uh, within a couple of weeks of being here, they were throwing everything onto me, and within three months, I was moving here, uh, and that's how I ended up running the conference. I was—it's the great honor of my life. I get to coordinate the most meaningful artistic event of my life. I mean, it's—it's it's nuts. It's really good. So, what is it like to plan and run a theater conference? Like, what you know, some drawbacks or some things? Well, yeah. I have the. I, I've been I've been given something that so few people get to do, mm-hmm. which I've been given a lot of leeway and control. Um, I pretty much get to run the conference as I see fit. Now, my first couple of years, I was working under the founder, and I had almost no say over the art- artistic content. Um, but after uh, she left, uh, then everybody else just wanted me to do it. And so while I, you know, have a, a national advisory board and I certainly talk to lots of people about it, I essentially coordinate the conference for younger me, mm-hmm. for young, confused Dawson who needed a free place to stay, uh, who needed to have his hand held through all the complicated processes of where to be when. Uh, and so I try to coordinate <laughs> for, um, for, for that kid who's confused but needs what the conference has to provide. Uh, and uh, no, I, 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 my, as a young person, I was always in customer service, uh, food service, mm-hmm. and such great training. That's most mm-hmm. of life is customer service. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's a, uh, it, it's a year long process, and there are parts of it that I'm better at and parts of it I'm worse at. The part that I love is the communication with artists. I love mm-hmm. that I get to have my toes in the nation's new art scene uh, i just think that's neat and fun and you meet this incredibly cool bunch of people um both in the pre-period and in the post-period when they get there uh every year i make a bunch of new friends and uh, and get exposed to a bunch of new ideas and have a wider web of people i love who are around the planet making art it's cool um uh there, there are parts that i'm not good at i'm not a great fundraiser um uh but that's part of the job you know it, it, after the conference ends, we go immediately into fundraising and assessment. Uh, huge believer mm-hmm. in assessment. Huge believer in asking people how it went. Huge believer in toughing my way through the um, the feedback forms and listening to uh, to people say mean things about <laughs> me. Um, but believe in that. Think think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, uh, and then uh, then the plays start pouring in. Uh, we have a very uh, specific process here. Uh, I read li- I pr- read slash process literally every play that comes in. Um, 
and then I ranked. That's astounding. Yeah, you personally read every play. Yeah, it's about four or five hundred scripts a year. Wow. Um, and holy cow! It, well, it it I I want to I'll I'll make it make sure I'm upfront about a little less braggy. We take about two to four percent of full length play submissions. Um, okay. So mm-hmm. if someone submits me a ninety minute play and 10 minutes in, I don't care and I'm confused, it costs them nothing to submit, and they're competing for an expensive invitation to a holiday. Right? Right. Uh, so I'm okay. It's not. Like, I think there would be different ramifications on it if we were competing for $10,000 or something, but because what I'm offering is this expensive holiday, uh, you know what? Sorry, you didn't get your jobs to get me 10 pages in. If you didn't, I don't. So when I say I read four to 500, I don't automatically read them all, all the way through. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And and we should clarify for listeners, the expensive part, of course, is the plane tickets to Alaska. Right, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and once people are there, they can stay somewhere for free. And We do um, lots of things to try and make it feasible. Again, I was, I lived below the poverty line when I was coming here for my first bunch of years. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so the fact that we provide free lunch, the fact that there was a floor with a roof to throw my head on, uh, the fact that mm-hmm. we keep our registration, we're, we're going up for the first time in eight years, we're going up to uh, $80 for a week long conference. It's still nothing. Um, so we do all those things, but yeah, you got to get yourself to Alaska and Valdez yeah. is not just getting to Alaska is getting to Alaska and then getting further into Alaska. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah people, uh, you get to Anchorage, that's easy, but then there's another either five hour drive or another uh, 40 minute plane ride. Um, we've talked to a lot of playwrights on this show about the rejection, the application and rejection process, and what, you know, how they think about rejection and how they think about sending their work out. So we're really curious to know from your perspective as someone who reads a lot of plays every year and makes decisions about them, um, what does the other side of that look like? You're a playwright, so you know what it feels like to send your work out. And then you also know what it looks like to receive 500 plays and have to pick, you know, only some of them. Mm -hmm. So what do you wish playwrights knew? What do you wish you had known when you were younger about the the application process itself well everybody has to have more empathy right um and that's from people who are receiving the things you need to understand how sensitive people are i I think of my plays as my children and when i send them out to you and you tell them my child isn't as smart as another child children i I think you're (laughs) stupid uh right so we need to Mm -hmm. you know people in sitting in my seat need to do their best to be sensitive to the fact that you're rejecting someone's child of course, the, the, that can be a hard experience. In terms of the reverse, almost every literary department I've ever sat on was poorly or not paid um, and completely mm-hmm. over inundated. So mm-hmm. occasionally, you, you know, uh, I, my least favorite day of my job every year is rejection day. And yeah, and it's complicated. I used to um, when I was first starting off at this job, uh, my rejection letter was a little long and sort of crafted and lots of don't worry honey you go on you'll be fine and um <laughs> and i realized after a couple times that that was stupid um that that's a waste of time when i get a rejection as an email i just want you to let me let me know to check that box in my database of where i sent stuff i don't mm-hmm. need your heartfelt words about how they, yeah, i don't know what i'm talking whatever just tell me i didn't get in be polite about it and yeah. yeah, and so uh, I think you know, quick and personalized. I'm always amazed as a playwright when I send someone uh, an email 
and the the company goes, we won't have time to tell people we, we reject. I'm like, are you kidding? You won't have right. time to like gather together all the ones you're rejecting into a group email blind CC and say no. That you know, because I do a little more than that. Like I, I every author who's rejected, I send them an individual email. I do that in case they want to ask me questions. Not that I want that, but I want them to feel like they've been communicated with as human beings. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and moreover, I, I you know, I, I, I like to say, especially to younger writers, uh, I like to go, Hey, you did really well. I'm sorry. We didn't get to take you. There's only so many slots because when I was young, uh, my second play, we were the playwriting class forced us to, uh, to send it out. And when I got it back, they were rejecting it, but they'd accidentally or on purpose included their reader's notes and said some really nice things. Oh, no. No, they said, well, I mean, they, they didn't take oh, the play, but the reader's notes was, said some really nice things. But they were play. nice. Okay, good. And I just remember how much. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, right. yeah. yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, boy, they, I, I assume every developmental, uh, every, every, uh, every, uh, literary department ever doesn't want their notes to go public because yeah when they're private you say some rude things um <laughs> but uh, i just remember how much that meant to me to have somebody personally communicate with me so i um uh, uh, yeah so i try to give that kind of energy back out to the world so when you're reading these plays i have a question like do you are you is there a criteria you're kind of juggling like are you thinking about the audience in valdez are you thinking about um like what like themes are you looking for when you're reading or um, just, yeah. it's interesting you'd ask that uh, the, um, cause I'm actually experimenting a little bit this year, but I'm going to talk about that cause I'm just experimenting with it. But generally speaking for my program, I'm bringing 55 writers up mm-hmm. for that 55 writers. I want all sorts of diversity, racial diversity, age diversity. I want storytelling style diversity. Um, like if we were just doing the Dawson Moore show, it would all be dark comedies. Like that's all. <laughs> we would and so I have to look beyond my taste and look for quality writers and quality people and quality scripts mm-hmm. of a wide variety. I remember one year I got three um, historical lesbian plays that were all pretty good. And I'm like, I'm, I've only gotten slots for nine plays. I'm not going to do three of the same play, even though they're all good. There was there was one year where I got um, uh, the Monica Lewinsky play that Sarah Tuff wrote and another great play that was also that. I'm like, I'm not going to do two plays on the same subject. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking to provide a real pastiche of, of as many different styles and things as possible. One of the great things that theater can do is it can uh, have people playing across age uh, ranges mm-hmm. like you know mm-hmm. a young person hanging out with an old person hanging out with a middle aged person. I, mean, I, I think it's one of the things that we can do. It's great, and I, so I try to encourage that. Um, I have a general rule of thumb that I try to make it be more than half women. Just there's plenty of good work, and it's just like ah, it, it's so random. You know, you're doing you know you're you're doing quantitative judgments or whatever of of work. I don't know. So when I'm designing it. I generally speaking try to have more women than men and I try to have a variety of everything else. I just want to say right now in this moment that one day I'm going to have a historical lesbian play festival. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sounds there, like man. a great idea. <laughs> I tell you, there are lots of them. <laughs> I've called it. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And then how do you think about um, the, uh, the kind of workshop? part of the festival how do you, mean you which classes we offer? plan for that and um how do you gather together yeah the classes and then i'm also wondering about your collection oh sure um in terms of think? classes that sort of follows from who i sign up to be a panelist 
Um, because then you go, okay, you haven't taught in a while. Mm-hmm. You're new to us. So okay. I want you to do something new and that kind of thing. But I generally just try to make, I go to the, the teachers and go, what do you want to teach? Here are the confines of the class. What would fit within that? Because they're going to know what mm-hmm. their, what their balloics are. They're going to know what the things that they're good at teaching are and, and put them to the time frame. Sometimes I'll do a little, uh, I'm working with Valerie Hagar, uh, this year. She's a, uh, one woman, uh, playwright, director, uh, she's amazing. She's really one of my top five experiences in a theater was her uh, show Naked in Alaska and uh, and I'm working with her and, and her husband Scott on creating a very specific set of workshops that are about uh, creativity because I know them so I don't think they have them necessarily on tap but they have lots of things in the area and I'm working with them to create it but generally speaking it's on the, uh, on them. Uh, in terms of how the panelists are selected it's, it's uh, something that changed for me about five six years ago like when I first took over I was just struggling to keep it alive and run and I was really just anybody who was wanted to be a part of my family, and I wanted to have them there every year. As that family has grown every year, uh, now I try to, um, and now I try to have it include a bunch of new people every year. And that if you look at the panelists from 2018 to 19 mm-hmm. to 17, you go, "Wow, every year was a completely different set of people." Um, so pretty random. A lot of them come through recommendation. Um, we definitely have the problem that there are way too many great super people I would love to have with me um, uh, and love to have with us here. You've dedicated some of your time, your life to playwriting, to theater. So what is it about plays that you love? Like, what is so great about plays? Oh, um <laughs> Well, like so many people, it wasn't so much a choice as where I went. You know what I mean? And it, it's possible that mm-hmm. there might have been another path that I walked down, but it grabbed me at the time when I wanted it. In terms of why theater still matters, so I feel like from the moment I chose to go into theater, people have been assuring me that it was a dying art form, right? You know, uh, it, it's you know, and I just mm-hmm. uh, for me, what keeps me coming back is the occasional moments of magic in theater, of legitimate actual the people on stage blend together spiritually and energy wise with the people in the audience and they have a collective shared experience i don't get that from anywhere else like you get it inside of a theater at those peak mm-hmm. moments and i think that's part of what'll keep us uh, what'll keep theater vital i also think that we're a theatrical we're an artistic weed um like we crop up anywhere there's a room mm-hmm. and a couple people that tell a story. And so oh, that's such a great image. Yeah. Right. So it was never going to go away because we can always do that. And the drive to do that's there. I've recently been expanding into storytelling um, and playing with that. And it's been interesting because it's mm-hmm. helped me sort of define how much I like fiction. Like I'm enjoying storytelling and I'm enjoying telling honestly stories from my life, but I also take real joy in the ability to craft them and to and to discover about both the world and myself through the journey inside of the creation of them um uh in terms of why i write plays myself i mostly just like to be in audiences when people laugh and i wrote it i just think it's awesome Mm. um yeah um, it's one of the best feelings out there i think right it's so good like i love i love every part of theater there are moments of joy in directing and producing and acting and everything else but nothing tops when your show is kicking it and that you're in the audience with it. I am a uh, brief story. Mm-hmm. Um, I play oh. bio in the afterlife is set in the Egyptian afterworld. It's a very funny comedy. I'm very proud of it. And it's had a good life, but it, um, uh, in the production in San Francisco in 2000, um, at the very end of the play, sorry, I'm going to ruin my one act. I know everyone's going to rush out and, and read it or whatever. Uh, at the end of the play, 
uh, the Egyptian gods who've been being bossed around by an American businessman who's decided to remake the afterworld in his own image suddenly reveal that they've just been messing with him. That, of course, you couldn't reshape divinity. That's ridiculous. Only an American businessman would think he could die and then take over the afterworld. Um, and everybody thought it was very funny, very funny. <laughs> and then Osiris uh talked about how human beings are so vain and you know all the while worshiping whatever religious fad is in vogue like that current stick puppet and the actor did a big crucifixion thing and you could feel the wave wash over the audience of uh, people oh who had God. been so with the play for 20 minutes and it ranged some of them were cheering some hissed afterwards after every show someone would come up to me and tell what a great play you have to take that out um and so that's I'm like Okay, actually, I like laughing. Wow. I like this even better. <laughs> Just, oh, wow. I, this is the, right, the alienation thing that Brecht was talking about. We were like, whoa, they all, they had to stop watching because it had an effect on them. That's awesome. <laughs> so those two reasons. It, it's it's the magic part. That's that's the real reason theater will always be here. And I'll that like be electric feeling of something just happened to the audience. There's something so... Um, there's something dangerous about that kind of moment mm -hmm. too, though, because you're playing with fire, you know? And so you, and it's hard to know if you've gone too far until you actually discover that with an audience. In, uh, um, in 2007 at the conference, we had a production of um, Equus brought in and I discovered on the morning of the production that there's a rule on the Valdez law books. That you can't have nudity in a city owned building. Um, what? Right. And uh, so, you know, fine. We, we, I ended up having a private nudity screening with the city manager to set the lights at the proper level. It oh was my weird. God. Uh, but the thing was three weeks later was the girl in the dragon tattoo. And I'm like, okay, they yeah. were going to be a little naked on stage. This has a violent, horrifying rape in it, but this is fine because it's a movie. Huh. Okay, this actually, in some ways, is is reminding me why theater is more powerful, because we're really there. We're not mm -hmm. just putting some things on a flat screen or a 3D screen. We're, we're really in the room with those people. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, that statement that it's the art form that's dying. Like I, I feel like I've heard that statement all my life, all through college or the grad school. But I don't know why, but I just feel like mm -hmm. more people, I'm encountering more plays, more writers. Like, I feel like the community has been growing. And I'm so I don't know, like, if that's even true. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I don't feel anything like that inside of the actual mm -hmm. world of things. Yeah. Do you have any advice for new playwrights or maybe even playwrights who wants to run their own conference someday <laughs> or like do you have any advice <laughs> yeah uh well my advice it remains to say everybody just make sure you're doing what you want to do mm -hmm. right and for me it's about in my life and i can only look at this right from there don't worry that much about money keep doing what you want to do people as soon as you say you're going to theater major in theater in college everyone's gonna be like oh i better have a backup plan oh you're not gonna make any money and i didn't until <laughs> i was 32 or 33 i had a lot of part-time jobs i waited on a lot of tables i did whatever and even if i had never made money at it uh, making a life in art is not 
about money. Money is an affectation of human society that we're stuck with. That's how we measure stuff. It's fine. But I think where artists get messed up, particularly in this country, is they get married to what money means. And, you know, I'm not really a such and such unless I make money at it. (laughs) Just that makes me so sad because you're denying yourself the purpose of art is not money i'll guarantee that mm-hmm. um it's a reality mm-hmm. you got to deal with it i deal with the conference like i said that you know costs a lot of money to attend so i'm, I'm not trying to but i think that where people go off is they you know they, they get too mired in what it, just make art if that's what you got to do do it keep pursuing it the money will come if you go with an open heart and if you go with enough perseverance. Because quite frankly, it's it's so tiring that uh, by the time you reach into your 30s, a lot of everybody's begun to to stop, right? That you know, yeah. in the 20s, there's tons of young people. It's incredibly competitive. By the time you get into your 30s, people have begun to you know have families. People have begun to go, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and the opportunities tend to open up more. So my main uh, objective would be make sure you're doing what you want to do. If theater's what you have to do, do that and make your money somewhere else. Uh, it sounds then, like what you're saying is you just have to outlast all the people. Kind of, dude. <laughs> uh, no, frankly, I was never the um, I was never the most talented kid in any school that I was in in anything. That was not. Uh, I was always one of the nicest, and I was always one of the funniest, but I was not one of the best. <laughs> so you know, for what it's worth, just keep you just hang in there. Hang in, and you know, you also talent is one of the things. Hard work, long time, you know, dedication, all those things also play into it. So I wasn't the most talented, but my dedication to it, and my sticking to it, uh, eventually led me where I am. Sweet, that's great advice. Uh, it's it's sort of simple. But it, but life will throw you a million reasons not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this part of our show, we do glistens where we talk about things that kind of popped for us during the week or it could literally be anything. I've talked about vegetables on the show. I've talked about um, all the most random things. So um, I guess to get started, I could start. Um, so my glisten, I think think because I had a table read for one of my plays I want to say community you know I'm always so afraid of like putting myself out there and being like oh I want to put this table read together but I don't know who's gonna who's actually interested and will actually show up or volunteer their time and then I'm always so like amazed when it happens when I like put a call out and then people are like yeah I'm down like I'm down I'll come out and then I'm just like and it's so It just, I'm always amazed, like all every single time. I don't know why, but <laughs> yeah. But that was my glisten. Yeah. That's really cool. Really nice yeah. for everyone to take their time. Yeah. So, Sam, do you have a glisten? Yeah. I'm, I'm really torn. I mean, my big glisten, just in general, is impeachment. That's all I can think <laughs> about right now. Yeah. Um, so, I think I'm just going to go with that. It's kind of amazing because. I remember so clearly being 10, 11 years old the last time the country went through this process. And now I'm much older and it feels like, you know, there's times in your life when you're like, wow, everything kind of rhymes or things come back around again, except totally different. And this feels like a moment Mm. like that. That's all. I'll just leave it there. Impeachment. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, no. I was thinking about the question. I mean, the world is so full of 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 craziness right now around the national, international, whether it's the lungs of the planet burning or all that. But I will. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about death. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, and I'll stick with the theme of talking about myself. Uh, now, I am um, for about 20 years now. I've been saying that I would like to have a a, a stand up set uh, played of me at my funeral. Um, <laughs> I just think that'd be pretty funny to be like, hello, is that me down there? Did you do open casket? How do I look? Oh my God. That's so that. exciting. And uh, yet I've been, also I've been, hilarious. I've been, I've, been, I've been saying it for like 20 years, but eventually if you actually want it to happen, you actually have to write and record it. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's been some avoidance I've been practicing with that. So finally last week, I, um, uh, for the first time wrote out the text for my funeral video. What? And I was shocked. I got so sad. (laughs) Well, yeah. I, I'm, for me, I'm really pleased, man. I did not, I, when I picture this video, it is a callous tell all, but I, when I, once I was actually writing it and thinking of myself as dead, I'm like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. So my listen is that I was excited to find out that I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that's also kind of a, an amazing writing exercise yeah. that I want to give to some students in my future of like, write a speech that you would give at your own funeral. Mm-hmm. No, it was really interesting. It went in directions I didn't expect. And, and bizarrely, like four pages into it, I wrote out this treatment of something that I've been talking about for six years and I just oh when I thought I was going to die I thought I should tell this story to someone oh, yes. wow wow I'm going to be thinking about this oh, for a this, while this just kind of reminded me right. I'm sorry but another glisten but I was on the freeway and I saw two, like a, a car accident right before my eyes like two cars oh, just God. like head on collision spinning around on the freeway and I was just like oh my god I mean this is LA like we were just like I'm on these highways every day, like 300 times a day. And I was like, to witness this, I was like, I'm, I, I don't know. I just want to just walk everywhere all over LA. I don't want to drive anymore. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Was it, how was it a head on collision? Were they, was there no median between the. My, my theory is this one car was trying to exit, but then like uh, realized, oh, this is not the right exit and like spun. Turn around. To, oh my God. And then I think the car. <gasps> just like <sighs> hit that car and they were like spinning around. I don't know. Like <sighs> we, um, uh, we in Valdez in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of tragedies. Like I said, it's a town of 4,000 people and we've lost six, seven people and they've all been about, but this uh, past uh, weekend, my dentist's uh, uh, wife and child both died in an auto accident oh and we live 300 miles away. So I do that drive. They do all the time. And it's just a reminder. That's right. It's dangerous to live this far out. You're tacking on 600 miles of driving every time you go up to the city. Hmm. Oh. Um, yeah. So that might well have been why, uh, why my own demise was on my mind. Oh. Mortality. Wow. Oh, well, on that note. Up, up, up. <laughs> so, Dawson, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, if you want to see an online museum for who I was in 2012, uh, that would be DawsonMoore.com. Um, <laughs> that's uh, still out there, still sitting there. The email address doesn't work anymore. Uh, we got theaterconference.org um, uh, for, uh, for all things theater conferencing. I think we come up something like fifth on Google, so that's not bad, not bad. Uh, so I'd say those would be the two places to get me. I'm not, 
are there hashtags I'm supposed to know? I'm kind of stopping with technology. Like I'm, I can, I can be hand walked through something, but I'm like, I don't think I very much wanted to get off of social media. Like all together, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 it depresses me and all that. But I don't feel like I can quite. Like I feel like you have to keep it as a tool right now. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely not going to pick up any extra ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much, Dawson, for yeah. Thank um, you so much. Our show, yeah. Uh, Sam, Sarah, it was great. You guys made this totally easy. Thanks so much. Right. So that was our interview with Dawson Moore. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you haven't, please make sure to share, subscribe to our social. You know what to do. You're a millennial. If you're listening to a podcast, you're a millennial. Come on. That's right. Please follow us. Um, And if you are a playwright and you would like to know about how to submit a play to the Last Frontier Theater Conference, you can go to theaterconference.org. That's theater with an R-E, by the way. And uh, submissions are being accepted until October 21st. It's free to submit. All you have to do is send them a play. And um, I encourage you to check it out. Yeah. All right, folks. Until next time, adieu. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 